Hey guys, welcome back to Tennis 360, the podcast where we talk about all things tennis. My name is Anthony Hirsch. And I'm Eliza Westgate. And today we will talk about different tournaments that happened last week. We're going to talk about the Doha 1000 tournament that happened uh, last week. Jasmine Paolini gets the win over Anna Kalinskaya. In three sets, she comes back from a set and a breakdown. Uh, Kalinskaya also served for it in the third set. Um, and, uh, you know, Paolini's been just the absolute, just like comeback master this week. <laughs> she came back against Hadad Maya from down a set and four, two, it was 15, 40. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was not a final you usually see in an, a thousand event. Yeah. You know, and I think this might be a little bit of a case study for the WTA to look at in terms of back-to-back 1000 tournaments. Um, literally played over a two-week period. Um, I think that this is a result of a little bit of a congested schedule whereby the top seeds are falling early because they're carrying fatigue from the previous two tournaments, one being a 1,000 and the other being a 500 tournament. Um, Obviously, this was also Sabalenka's first tournament back since the Australian Open, so she didn't have quite the best performance that she might have been looking for, um, but we know that she took a little bit of time away from the court, so that that's kind of an impacting factor. But in general, we would have expected to see uh, some higher ranked seeds uh, at least make it to the semis and the finals in this tournament. Um, but, you know, when you have a congested schedule, that leaves the door open for, you know, outsider opportunities to take advantage. And I think that Paolini is a, a type of kind of player that has the, the fitness and the skill set to, you know, kind of upset higher ranked players who might be carrying a little bit of fatigue um, from previous tournaments. She kind of got the perfect game for that because uh, she's such a battler and fighter from the back of the court um, that this this kind of whole tournament setup, I think, suited her very well to have a good run. And similarly with Kalinskaya, uh, who she defeated in the final, she came through qualifying uh, to, to have another impressive run so far this season and make um, a, the final here at her first Masters 1000 tournament. And she also played some fantastic tennis. So I think we kind of had conditions ripe for an outsider to have a good run. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the schedule is so wild to have just a, in within seven weeks, we have four 1000 events played. It's, it's yeah. so can, yeah, I, I saw somebody say you have 40% of the thousands played by the end of, uh, by the end of March, which is just like, that doesn't make sense as, uh, as yeah. the way the season set up a quarter of the season. Um, so anyway, I, I agree with you. It sets up for somebody uh, to, to make a run, especially because, you know, I think people want to peak at the Sunshine Double and Indian Wells, Miami, yeah. and they have that mentally in their head. Um, and yeah, but anyway, uh, it's a, it was a great, uh, great performance from both, uh, from both ladies though, as they, um, sorry, my alarm went off. It was a great performance from both uh, from both ladies, though, um, and Paolini just hitting so hard. Both bo- both women hitting so so yeah. hard throughout, um, and you know, uh, I, I thought it was a great contest of just neither player served incredibly well. Um, mm-hmm. Like Paolini only made forty nine percent of her first serves in, uh, but I think that like uh, I think it it really set up for you know hard hitting and really good returning that made it a really tight yeah. battle throughout. And uh, it, it, it was it was high level, uh, mostly outside the serving, but it was high level. And um, I think it's exciting for people to see players that they don't usually see in the big finals. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's what we got. 
And uh, yeah, Kal- Kalinskaya, I mean, she's just been consistently a player that's improving so so rapidly. She's not always been healthy, but she's a young player. She's only 25. Now I think she's playing the best tennis of her career yet. And yeah. uh, she lost the final, but she, she was so close. She had an incredible run, um, as you were saying. And I mean, just yeah, yeah, whenever you come from qualifying, get to the final of a big event and beat a player like Shiantek on route, uh, it's always crazy. So yeah. um, anyway, speaking of that Shiantek loss, by the way, did you think it was more of a good win for Kalinskaya or a bad loss A bad loss for Iga uh, to lose 6-4, 6-4? Very unlike Iga. Yeah, it was a little bit uncharacteristic. I do think that Kalinskaya, again, is that kind of player profile that can disturb Shriantek with that kind of big hitting from the baseline on taking time away from Iga and kind of drilling it to her forehand. So I thought Kalinskaya approached the match in the right way tactically and has the type of weapon that can upset Shriantek's game, especially when she's feeling a little bit mentally fatigued. I mean, uh, Shriantek... If you watch her play, she just plays with such a level of kind of mental intensity that I'm not saying the other women don't have, but it it feels like um, a more of a kind of draining energy at times from Shriantek because she's so like um, perfectionist to kind of about everything she does on the court that it kind of feels like for her, this type of scheduling is even more kind of impacting in terms of, you know, making a deep run in the previous week uh, in the Masters 1000 tournament and then coming straight to Doha and kind of needing to to continue that run. And I think it was a little bit of a surprise in terms of how Kalinskaya was playing, but again, also just the, the conditions, bringing that fatigue kind of with her and just looking a little bit uh, below par from what we've been seeing from Shriantek. But I mean, she still had you know, all in all, a very strong start to the year. And I think a lot of us have looked at her performances over the last two weeks and sort of picked her as a real threat again, going into the sunshine double, especially where conditions are favorable for her. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't go that much, you know, um, at Triantec for law. I mean, she had one, I think going into this loss, I think like 24 out of her last 25 matches. So she was on a good run of form anyway, but of course it is disappointing. But um, you know, I, I like I, I was trying I was trying to figure out exactly what had happened. But I, the thing that impresses me about Kalen Sky is that she's been able to dictate um, dictate a lot of the play here. But she's really yeah. not usually like the most aggressive player like on the tour. There are more aggressive players on the tour. She has a vast skill set, a vast kind of defensive skill set. She had a lot of great kind of uh, slices and drop shots, great net play throughout this event as well, and. Um, you know, uh, what, and she, the thing is, though, she is able to kind of step up on forehand when she when she needs to. And I think the good thing about Colin Sky is she's always so looks so chilled out there on the court. Yeah. She's always just like head down, focused. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I a stat is uh, that Colin Sky got to hit 98 forehands uh, to 84 backhands. Shriantek hit uh, 98 um, 98. Uh, uh, 98 backhands and 96 forehands. So that kind of shows that Kalen Sky really got to dictate a lot more in the match Yeah. and uh, with the forehand. And that's really what we saw throughout the match. Uh, huge hitting. And I think it is the huge hitting that can uh, really get the better of Shriantek, especially when you are able to back it up with some variety as well. And yeah. I think that that really, uh, that and kind of a poor, poor, poor performance from Iga, where I, it was like four two in the first set, and then uh, Iga got got through like a five, like a four or five deuce game, 
And uh, it looked like Iga was going to take the lead. She was up 4-2 and mm-hmm. on her serve, and then it would, she got broken out love in the next game. Very poor service game. There were a couple moments like that in the match where she yeah. had to just blink to too many errors, and I thought yeah. that that made the difference. Also, her first serve percentage was not even close to what it usually is. So Yeah, uh, and I think that's just the fatigue portion. And again, like that kind of uh, comparison and mental approach between Kalinskaya and Triantec, where Kalinskaya just seems pretty relaxed and you know, nothing to lose in this type of situation. And I do think Triantec sort of carries that weight and pressure of her, you know, role as well, number one, but also just this sort of uh, internalized pressure that she has on herself to perform match in, match out. Um, and I, I think at times it can just sort of catch up to her. But um, yeah, you know, everybody has a little bit of an off day every once in a while, especially when you look at a, a schedule as congested as it is. And I don't think that takes anything away from the Kalinskaya performance. I think that stat you gave between forehand and backhand shows the level of distribution that can bother Sviantec. If you can go to the forehand and make her hit as many forehands as you possibly can, especially if you're going there with pace, I think that is when you're able to draw more errors and stress out Sviantec a little bit more because her backhand really is her you know, favorable shot and where she causes the most damage. Um, and she can look more rushed on that on that forehand side. So I think uh, players are starting to figure that out if they have the game style to execute kind of that type of aggressive tennis. And then, they, then they're more likely to see some rewards against Triantec. Uh Yeah, well, speaking, I have a, a different stat that kind of proves your point, right? Which is that uh, Kalinskaya hit 36 wide serves to just 13 T serves, even on yeah. the deuce side where she was hitting a lot of them to the to the forehand. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's what Kalen Sky was doing and really yeah. attacking over that shot. Um, but yeah, I, uh, first WTA final period of Kalen Sky's career. She does it by beating Goff, Ospinko, Sviantek, and four other players. Uh, pretty good. And uh, that's why I think we're speaking so highly of her. But yeah, for the most part, I, I agree about Iga. It's not, it's not a worry sign, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's just uh, you, it's, it's a match to look at a performance to look at, to hope that it's not, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't repeat, but it's, you know, she, everybody will have a bad day. We'll see how she plays in the sunshine double and she can pick up, she can pick up her level from this kind of match and the performance this week. Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, another good run this week was from Kirstea, who's mm-hmm. uh, I believe 32, 33 years old. And she's, uh, yeah. she's now finally reaching some WTA 1000s playing the best tennis for a career. She reached a career high ranking. Um, jumping right near the top 20 in the world. She's going to have points to defend at the Sunshine Double. But, um, I mean, she's playing amazing. She saved six match points versus Von Drusova and won the best yeah. comeback of the the year. Uh, it was ridiculous. And, um, you know, it, it's just so, such fine margins on so many of those points. But it was Kirstea's willpower that really fought her back into the match. I feel like we saw that time and time again throughout this tournament, whether it was Paulini versus Hadad Maya, whether it was, or Paulini's whole tournament, really, or whether it was yeah. Kirstea um you know versus von Drusova or whether it was Vekic versus Sabalenka in the first round take out Sabalenka did you see that point that Sabalenka played at 2-0-40-43 where she had a backhand swinging volley and then the match turned on its head yeah that was that was nuts and I think that yeah Sabalenka literally had to play right on top of the ball for a backhand <laughs> volley winner and she just leaves it for no reason and then guess what the match turns like that I, I'll yeah. be honest, I've never seen that happen before in my life. But <laughs> at a point like that shifts everything around. It's like, come on, you can just like hit the ball. Because then you never know. And the match just completely shifted. Beckett literally yeah. won 12 of the last 13 games to turn that around. So, yeah, that was a massive brain fart from, from yeah. Zabalenka. Uh, unfortunate. Uh, lack of match 
play, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Over the last couple of weeks, obviously, we talked about it last week. She seemed to have a little bit of a procedure, took some time off the court. You know, these types of things can can happen. Lapse in judgment kind of reminds me of uh, Davidovich Fakina last year at Wimbledon when he decided oh, yeah. when he was ahead in the tiebreak to serve an underarm serve. That was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Um, so, yeah, these things happen. Players are human. I think also it's a good reminder for us recreational tennis players that at every level of this sport, like you could be match point, multiple match points down and come back, not only win the match, but win the tournament. So it's worth hanging in there. It's worth playing one more point and continuing to try. And I think it's um, this tournament was a good kind of a showcase of why you know women's tennis can be very entertaining and be a little bit different from the men's game in terms of the the talent field is very deep and it can be anybody's day um and anybody can kind of beat anybody and i think that because of the fact that women's serves maybe aren't as dominant as a man's serve is that we do see these types of things happening a little bit more often where we have players come back from kind of ridiculous situations. I do think some of these players are more experienced and should be closing out matches and shouldn't be in these types of situations, particularly in that comeback against Von Drusova that Castella had. I mean, Von Drusova was up, what was it, 5-1 or 5-2 in the second set. I mean, yeah. she she is a good enough player to know how to manage that game um, and close out the match. So I thought that was quite a collapse from her end. And obviously, Castella did everything she could to you know, keep herself in it. But you would expect a Grand Slam champion to have a little bit more um, closing closing ability in a match like this uh, and at a level like this. Um, and also similar with Sabalenka, you know, to, to have a bad point or have a brain fart that happens, but you would expect her to not then have such a deep bleed after the fact. Um, but, you know, Vekic has beaten, I think, Sabalenka before. She kind of knows how to play her a little bit. And, um, yeah, so I think there's I think there's something to say in that some of these players are experienced enough to manage the games a little bit better and should should have put themselves uh, in winning positions to, to get through. But um, at the same time, it's what makes the women's game pretty exciting. And I think it's also, yeah, as I said, just a reminder that the game can turn at any minute. You never know. And just keep fighting for points. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I always like the person who's down like 5-3 five, five, and, you know, 7-5-3, 40 love down. They keep yelling, come on. I mean, some people think you look like an idiot, but I think both of us will think you look like a badass even if you lose the match. Yeah. So I think like that, I think that that is a big thing. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, uh, Sabalenka, I just really don't understand what, how how mentally she just completely folded from that situation. Um, it was it yeah. was a bit unfortunate to see. Sablink has already proven herself. I mean, she's, she'll be back. It was just like this yeah. one performance in separation was just like it was almost hard to hard to see. But that being said, mm -hmm. the scoreline really read closer than it was. There were a lot of close games, even those like yeah. that, especially in the third set. There were a lot of close like deuce games. Yeah. Um, but uh, Vekic was just too strong, too good. I mean, uh, yeah. Vekic hit forty five winners to twenty nine errors. That's a stop yeah. for you. She played amazing. Uh, I agree with you about the depth in the women's in the women's game, um, and I think that we saw a lot of that in this week's tournament, which mm -hmm. was um, you know Vekic, and then we had Kalinskaya. These are players that have been there week in week out, but we've never really seen them have a deep, like a, a huge huge run at a thousand yeah. at least in recent times. Um, and uh, it was I think this was a good tournament to see that. 
like you said, the circumstances for this to be the schedule to be so congested, which I agree is a factor, is not ideal. But either, but you know, it's it's good to see runs from players like Kristea, from players like Vekic, from players like Paulini, from players like uh, Kalinskaya. Those are those are good yeah. things to see. Exciting, uh, exciting for the game. And uh, yeah, yeah, we'll. And that a lot of players now get the opportunity to come into the Sunshine Double with a decent amount of confidence. I think that makes the Sunshine Double for the WTA side look kind of a little more interesting because you've got, yeah, more players ranked, you know, a little bit lower, kind of like outside of your top 10. I think, you know, there are a lot of players in the field right now in the women's game between 10 and 30 that fancy themselves, that feel like they've had a really good start to the year um, you know, you'd put Kalinskaya in there. You might even put Yastrzemska in there. You put Pliskova, who's had a good couple of weeks. You would put uh, Daniel Collins, who's had a good couple of uh, wins so far this season. Um, and there's more names that come to mind as a result of, you know, getting a couple na- uh, good wins, decent wins under your belt. And I think that does a lot to make these upcoming tournaments pretty interesting um, because, because they're, you know, slightly truncated tournaments, that these are players that are going to meet each other earlier on in, in the tournaments. And so I think we've set ourselves up for the potential to have some really interesting and intriguing kind of earlier round matches, particularly at Indian Wells, um, where the conditions there also are so variable between night and day that we could really see an opportunity for some, some upsets that, really maybe we wouldn't even categorize as upsets given you know the depth and talent and the fact that they've had some positive runs and results so far this season yeah yeah i agree i think uh, it would be great to see just all of the names that we saw this week still um you know contesting against the top top players in the world um and yeah uh that was kind of the doha event the and then yeah in in about 11 days following this we have in indian walls miami so mm-hmm. Madness. <laughs> yeah. But talking of good comebacks, I think it's uh we can move on to the Los Cabos title or tournament in Mexico. That was a 250 tournament, and that had some awesome comebacks, particularly from the Australian Jordan Thompson, who did secure the title at the end of the day. He defeated Casper Rude 6376. Um, and he also claimed the doubles title alongside Max Purcell. So a great tournament win him that's his first career singles ATP tour title and the reason why I bring that up is that Thompson actually saved multiple match points in the quarterfinals against the young American Alex Mickelson and he did even get bageled in that first set um so an incredible comeback there really had to hang tight in the second set serving to get to the tie break and then played a super clean tie break I know um, we could also talk a little bit about Mickelson because I saw you tweeted about, you know, what if he really is that young American talent that's going to be top of the top of the crop when it comes to American tennis players. And he put on some some really good tennis there. And I'm sure he'll be pretty disappointed that he wasn't able to close out that match, that he didn't play a great tiebreak and then sort of fell away in that third set. But, you know, that's the experience of a, of a, of a teenager versus a 29 year old who's been grinding on this tour for a long time. And was one of Thompson's best ever comeback wins. Again, an example of why you don't give up, why you, you know, kind of keep fighting. Screw it. You got bageled in the first set. Doesn't matter. You start over in the second and the third. Like nothing, nothing in the past impacts the future in tennis. And I think that's what makes this this sport so exciting. And um, 
Mickelson also worth mentioning beat uh, Dimonor, who's been having a good year so far. Um, and uh, yeah, he took him out in the round of 16, had a really good tournament. Yeah, uh, I, I was watching it 6030, uh, also 6041, 1540. Uh, Alex Mickelson had the chance to knock out the guy who eventually won the tournament. Uh, Thompson was hitting balls at the back fence, and he was he was shouting out. He was had his arms raised in the air. He was wondering, why things just aren't working today. This is just a bad day. Goes on to win the tournament doubles and in singles. Crazy run, beats Rude, um, and also Zverev back-to-back. Zverev in three hours and 40 minutes. That could end up being one of the longest matches of the whole season. Um, yeah, crazy, uh, crazy yeah, run from really Thompson well. to get his first ATP title as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, awesome for him. And I think, uh, kind of, he had such a busy like finals day too. I think he had to play like two doubles matches and yeah. a singles match spent like six hours on court. Plus he had that epic match, but he had to grind against Zverev, as you mentioned. Um, Zverev needs to find a way to win his matches a little faster. Just plays. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. that guy just gets into ridiculous long rallies because he never wants to go for a winner, for God's yeah. sake. It's insane. <laughs> but, um, I think it, it's also – sorry, go ahead. I was just, I, he has, like, the highest percentage of, like, matches that go so long. He literally has the highest rate on the tour. And I've long said, like, it's hard for me to think of, like, all-time epic matches with Zverev. But, like, he – whenever he plays a match, it will always go to, like, the decider, for better or worse. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. With, like, the longest <laughs> rallies ever. Just without – just like, what are you doing, mate? Like, yeah. I mean, every, every point is a slog for him. And you just oh, sort yeah. of feel like you're making your life brutal and for someone with his wingspan his height i mean i get he he likes playing a defensive game style i i I see that but with the serve that he has i mean at least on serve he should be looking to shortening the point to shorten the point he just seems to just like want to get into a rally from the baseline and i i think uh he'll hate me for saying this but he should take a little bit of a page from medvedev's book this year because medvedev's been more willing to mix it up and get out of this you know epic uh uh approach to playing tennis which is you know the long rallies and i'm gonna wait you out and slog you out and medvedev uh proved in uh, in australia that his ability to mix up those tactics come into the net short on the point put him in winning positions in matches that he you know may not have been in if he had continued with this sort of like grind them out level or grind them out tactic and so um yeah i i i think there's no real excuse for zverev (laughs) Um, with some of these uh, situations where he just seems unwilling to to do anything other than what he already knows. And uh, if we got into a bait on, debate on, you know, where Zverev is going to go in his career, I would suggest that um, kind of without making tactical changes where he could finish the point a little bit quicker, we're not going to see him winning big titles. Yeah, it's also mental as well, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, he has chances and matches, which he doesn't put away a lot of the times. And that just makes it longer, even if he gets the win at the end. Exactly. And it's just yeah. like, if you're if you're planning on winning a major eventually, he's still a pretty young guy, just turned 26. Uh, you don't want to play, you know, Lucas Klein 10-7 the third round. No, you got to be efficient with your match time and, yeah. and you know, really think that through. And um uh, it's not the Zwerer show today, but, uh, you know, if, if we if we did an episode on, you know, who, who could win a Grand Slam for the first time over the next couple of years, I, I do think that's a barrier for him. I mean, so many aspects of his game are really strong, but that's a weakness for him. Um, I, I also think it was interesting that Kasper Ruud took out Tsitsipas. I, I, I don't know whether to decide, whether to say that this was a bit of a surprise, whether this was like, 
they're kind of on par in terms of performance at the moment. Maybe Rude yeah. is a little bit stronger than Tsitsipas is currently. I mean, rankings-wise would suggest so. Um, but, you know, you would you would typically think that Tsitsipas loves to play on a hard court. These are the types of conditions that maybe would suit him better than Rude, who we know is a, is a stronger clay court player. Um, so I think Rude is showing some, some good form, much better form than he did this time last year. So he's approached the season in a, in a smarter way. Um, and I think in, a, in some senses, you know, the attention has really shifted to Sinner, Alcaraz, Djokovic, Medvedev, that Rude is getting a little bit of an opportunity to fly somewhat under the radar. Pressure is taken off ever so slightly and he's kind of able to go about his business as as needed and of course i think he'll be disappointed with that final performance and not being able to win that second set tie break but you know sometimes you come across somebody who's having a bit of an inspired run and wants to take the opportunity to get their first career title and they're up against the wall a little bit more than you are and um just didn't quite have the finishing ability um in in the final but i also just think that thompson played a really good match and sometimes um Sometimes it's just the way it goes. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think um, I think Casper is really impressive. Uh, Titspas had loads of chances throughout the second set. I believe he had a, a few set points as well, maybe. But mm. uh, he he was really good throughout throughout that match. I mean, his forehand was fantastic. I do think that his level dropped a little bit in the final, but he played amazing throughout the tournament. I mean, he beat Marcos Guerrero in the first round, like six zero six one. Yeah, uh, he played really a good. Yeah. yeah, he played a really really good tournament. And uh, I think he is a prospect that's going under the radar. For better or worse, he had a worse 2023. I think that's taken some of the pressure off his shoulders as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, he can be under the radar. And I, uh, I think on clay courts, he'll be somebody to watch, especially. But uh, I'm always high on Casper. So. Yeah, I think um, in a way, we know the Indian Wells conditions are usually pretty slow. So um, I would put him as maybe a, a bit of a, a sleeper to to be aware of um, Indian Wells this year and, and could, you know, maybe could be behind a couple of upsets if the courts really are playing as slow as they did last year. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I think Miami sped up. He, he did well in 2022 last year. It sped up. So that might be yeah. tough for him though, but we'll, we'll yeah. see. I think, I, I think, uh, I think he is a bigger prospect on hard courts than people give him credit for. And on clay, I'd be very eager to see how he does. Um, yeah. And then going over to the Rio ATP 500, Baez beat Navoni 6-2-6-1 in the final qualifier in Navoni. Two Argentines born in the 2000, his fifth tour title, his first ATP 500. He uh, unlocks a new career high ranking of number 21 in the world. Um, and uh, Baez took out Sorrendolo on the way as well. Uh, Navoni took out the defending champ Nori. And uh, I'll tell you what this reminded me of, actually. I was, wa I was watching some of the replays uh, of this. And it really didn't look like Navoti played that, like, didn't play a poor match. What it, what it looked like to me was uh, it reminded me of when Bias took on Yannick at the Australian Open, and it felt like Bias was playing a good match, but he just wasn't able to step up to the level that Yannick was playing at. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like with with Bias to Navoni. And uh, yeah, it was just I don't know. Navoni's backhand kept kept breaking down. A lot of er a lot of errors from that wing, and uh, Baez yeah. was able to just constantly get to that shot with such good width and placement that he's always able to do. Just getting one more extra shot back, he's so quick. And uh, even if the t top guys can usually put away that other like last ball that Baez gets into the court. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 he d is able to keep it low and make it tough enough that a guy who isn't expecting it or isn't able to handle it, it might be too much, or it might be too much every, you know, every third point, which is still not a good thing. So right. by his being so quick and getting another ball back is very good. 
And uh, yeah, Baez gets the win and he is now won four titles over the last two seasons. That is the only record shared by Sinner Djokovic, Medvedev and Alcaraz. So uh, <laughs> is, is Sebastian Baez flying under the radar? Is he part of the big five? Uh, well, he won the French well. Open the last. <laughs> Uh, no, he won't win the French Open, in my opinion, but he certainly is, uh, again, if we're talking about sleepers, he is a big sleeper on the ATP Tour. Um, you know, he is, as you say, four titles in the last two seasons, super impressive, but yet he's still only ranked 21, so that would suggest that there are some kind of inconsistencies in his results, like he either seems to have a really good run or it's, like, not good at all. Um, is is he the new... Uh, Diego Schwartzman, can he hang around, you know, and and kind of get inside the top 20, knock on the door of the top 10? Um, I think he has that, yeah, defensive style of play, very quick, is going to force you to play another ball. He kind of has a game style, if we're looking at top players, that would remind me a little bit of Alex Dimonor. Um, but I think he could learn from some of the adjustments that Dimonor has made over the last year that's allowed him to sort of teeter around that top 10 and even crack the top 10 in that he's sort of understanding he needs to find ways to win, like finish the points outside of just kind of being able to run and grind um, and, and go for some of the kind of winner opportunities that come to the net and, yeah, as I said, find ways to finish points against top players. And I would guess that that's probably kind of what Baez would need to add to his game in order to unlock Kind of a next level for him but i mean i i think what's a great uh takeaway or characteristic here is that when he's putting himself in the position to win tournaments more often than not he's winning them and i think that that you know is a winning mentality a winning characteristic it's not easy to win 250 titles um and so you know and he's taken out good players on on the road to the final surrenderlo certainly um kind of been a name that's been you know up there over the last couple of years as well and so i think um he's showing a, a demonstrating that he has a lot of mental toughness and this sort of winning mentality and so I, I think a lot of good things to come from him but i would still expect him to make some improvements before we really see him break into a level where he's challenging the top players consistently yeah i think he's a like he's a next gen guy that i think just isn't talked about enough i mm -hmm. i i think because he's so young and he is so winning he is winning when he's getting to these positions winning a lot of 250s and here in rio is a 500 yeah. as well which was a good yeah. win the draw was kind of strange for a 500 but part of that was yeah Alcaraz that's his also. biggest title yes and that was mm -hmm. uh that Alcaraz was forced to retire earlier which kind of yeah. took away him from the competition but still i mean it was a great win and uh you know, I uh, I do think that Baez is a very, very, very talented guy. And you see it from the way he can rally from back the court with consistent yeah. great depth, consistent great width. He's He's got a good backing. He's got a good forehand. But what you say, and it goes back to my point of him playing against Yannick at the Australian Open, is does he have that big weapon that can really test the top guy? Test the top guy. And I just don't think he does. Uh, he's a very tough out for nearly anybody below him, but it's just being yeah. able to beat the guys above him. That is another level. And right now yeah. that's kind of where he stands right in between, but he's doing great. And uh, he's still a young guy. So just some more eyes on bias. Cause he's kind of going a bit under the radar, I think. And uh, I also, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also uh, in this tournament, phone uh, Zeka beat Arthur feast six zero six four. Uh, that was his first ATP win, uh, which is crazy over top 45 guy to bagel him, 17 years old, second ATP event, and then he follows it up with a win over Christian Garin. Uh, second ATP event that Fonseca plays, huge explosive power, 
Uh, incredible lateral movement. I've seen people compare him to Yannick, the way he moves on the court. I kind of see it. I'm not going to lie. And uh, just huge forehand that is just so – I don't know. Uh, it's crazy that in the same week we had Fonseca and Menzik both kind of breaking out and also Alex yeah. Mickelson, three teenagers, kind of with yeah. big wins across three events. Um, and uh, I don't know. I uh, it, was, it, was, it was exciting. It was interesting. Yeah, a couple of things on that. I mean, I think, you know, on the women's game, we're used to seeing teenagers – break through and kind of get these opportunities where they can compete on a big level. Alcaraz was sort of the exception to that on the ATP side. We, you know, we usually aren't used to seeing teenagers have much success um, on the ATP level. And so it's exciting to see uh, players get the opportunity to compete in these tournaments. And then of course, to see them get a couple of results as well. Mensik was, uh, was able to compete in Qatar thanks to the next gen accelerator program, the wild card. I don't know if Fonseca got that for, for Rio, how he, he did not, I, believe I think okay. it was a wild card. Wild card. Okay. Wild card. Awesome. Um, am I mistaken? Did Fonseca win the U S open junior title last year? Is that kind of where we know? Yes, he did. Yeah. Okay. US open so, yeah. So I think he's, um, he's certainly a name that is, very intriguing and exciting to watch. I agree. I think his movement's probably the strongest aspect of his game, but he's also just a huge ball striker. Um, you know, and I think players at this age often just come into these tournaments with like, yeah, I, I don't I don't have anything to lose. Someone like a Christian Garin is a little bit more of a, a not a veteran, but you know, he's been on the tour a little longer. I think sometimes uh players in their, you know, kind of mid-20s play with some more pressure in the sense of like they're like, shit, I need to make this work for myself over the next couple of years and I need to make money and I need to, you know, pay my coaches and all this stuff. The pressure is is on. And so it allows these young guys to come in and, and play free and play their best tennis. And most importantly, get some experience on the big stage and kind of um, you know, have an opportunity to 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 get introduced to a higher level of of tennis. And um I think the win against Feast was also huge because Feast is uh, a talent that is also particularly young. He was ATP Next Gen uh, two years ago. I think he um, has been a name that a lot of us are expecting to kind of start to shoot up in the rankings, start to get some bigger results. And so to get a win over him, particularly on clay court as well, and to bagel him, I mean, my goodness, he, he must have just totally taken feast by surprise, which can also happen when, when you haven't kind of played against a guy like this before or really have much ma match footage and anticipation of how someone's going to play you. Um, but you know, all credit to Fonseca. I mean, feast has got to do a better job of, of figuring problems out during the match, but I also just think he came up against someone who was playing super free and playing some of his best tennis. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I mean, Watching some of the match, it did feel like Feast didn't really have a backup plan. He was just going like straight for like you know aggressive, and he was making yeah. a lot of errors, and he didn't really switch anything up. Fonseca looked so ready for the moment, though, that yeah. it was just so different from anything that I've seen. It was I can only remember Alcaraz, who was also a wild card, I believe at Rio as well, and beating Ramos Vignolas in the style he did, and you know he was yelling vamos and doing all the things that we know now. But it was like, it's so weird to see that from a young kid just coming up. But you want to see a guy who's that passionate and yeah. who probably grew up watching professional players and, you know, is excited for the moment. And, I, you know, that's a great thing. And I think that's, you know, what makes great champions. They have to be ready for the moment. And he was ready. And it was great to see him kind of step, step up in the way that he did. 
Um, and he's he's a big talent. All these guys are great athletes. Menzik, Fonseca. Yeah. And then you talk about yeah, a guy yeah. like you know Prismich as well at the Australian yeah. Open. Like, totally. I, I don't know which one this is of the next gens. Mm-hmm. Is this next, 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 next gen or what it is? Yeah. But it's uh, <laughs> But we've seen a lot of them, but this one is exciting as well. And uh, it's going to be fun to see Sinner Alcaraz and Runa taking on Fonseca, Menzik, and Prismich. I think that's what we're gearing up for. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think, as you say, some of these young guys are, are really good athletes and demonstrates kind of where the sport of tennis is going. Um, you know, I think nowadays, like, the strings, the equipment that that players have allow for a different level of game and strict production that we even saw from, you know, 20 years ago. And so players are having to condition themselves in ways that, you know, players 20 years ago wouldn't wouldn't have had to condition themselves that way. I'm not saying that they were not fit, but they are looking for maybe slightly different attributes and traits to separate themselves and kind of take the game to this new modern era. And I thought what was kind of fun about the ATP Next Gen Finals was they kind of had this like fitness segment that they filmed where they had the players go up and like do these different fitness challenges against each other that was like, uh, you know, how high can you jump? There was like agility tests, like speed tests, things like that. And I mean, these guys are putting out ridiculous numbers. You can check it out on YouTube. It's kind of fun to see. Um, and I would love if if they could do a comparison with some of the guys in the top 10 and kind of uh, see where those numbers compare to. Because I think when we, we look at a lot of these younger guys, in particular Prismich, it almost looks like their game is kind of built around a different type of athleticism we talk a lot about Prismich his game really built from the legs up um and you know his his power and kind of uh, speed coming yeah from from his lower half and that being where he really causes problems as opposed to just the stroke production itself so um yeah I, I'm really excited to kind of see how these young guys are going to shape the modern game of, of tennis and um it's certainly going to evolve how the how the sport is played also Menzik with kind of sliding on hard courts, you know, yeah. he does that all the time with, but with like both feet on hard courts, mm-hmm. which is very kind of Novak-esque. I think Novak kind of yeah. rushed that kind of in. Um, that probably even inspired maybe Egon, the woman's side, who does that all the time yeah. now as well. And, you know, Sinner yeah. who's doing it as well. And they might be yeah. the two best players in the world at the moment. So it's like... Yeah, I was going to say Fonseca got, because he's got that sponsorship with On, he's been compared to to Igor Sviantek as well. And I do think it's worth giving Igor the shout out on the movement side, because her movement really is elite. I think it's um, unique in the women's game. Obviously, Coco is a fantastic athlete, but I think the the footwork and the way that Igor Sviantek approaches movement on the tennis court is so clever so efficient um and yeah i think that her and, and sinner probably obviously alongside Djokovic, some of the the names that you would think of when it comes to the modern era of, of athleticism movement and kind of their approach to that which is unique yeah and it's very novak asked because she seems like a hard worker who focuses on really perfecting the ins and outs of kind of um well not the ins and outs but the um she she really has perfected her athleticism to be just so stellar. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's true. And then we have one more two fifty to talk about, which is the Qatar two fifty. Um, Hatchinoff and Menzik in the final, um, and uh, Hatchinoff with another good win. I think this is a guy going under the radar, and this is a guy who mm-hmm. got to the top ten for one week last year. 
um, but he got injured afterwards. But he's been, you know, he's been really consistent week in, week out. This is sixth title, sixth title on hard courts. And um, very impressive. And, uh, you know, Menzik had a great run. He beat Rublev. He beat Monfils. He beat Murray. He beat Fokina. On the way over there, Rublev in straight sets. Rublev didn't even play a bad match. Menzik just so impressive. And, yeah. and um, yeah, it was it was it was a great week for Menzik and and Hatchinoff getting it done. Um, yeah, which was it, it's such high level serving in that final as well. Every single service stat from first serve points, second serve points, one and first serve percentage um, yeah, from both players was sixty eight percent or over from both guys. It, it was crazy. Like you won't see better high level serving throughout the year in a final. And uh, it was 14, 12 in the tiebreaker, very small margins. Um, and there was a key turning point in that final uh, where Menzik hit a forehand down the line and it was Hatchlaw's backhand on defense for a lob where he turned defense to offense. That was really impressive. And I feel like Hatchlaw's backhand was really made a difference in a lot of the key points. Um, and, you know, Hatchlaw's playing a complete game and I think he's going under the radar. W- what are your thoughts on Karin? Yeah, I mean, I think I I looked at Karin at the beginning of the year thinking if he's healthy, he's he's going to be inside the top 10 again simply because his his on-serve games are so strong. It's just so hard to break him, and he's, he plays tie breaks really well. And um, he, he's made a couple of uh, Grand Slam semifinals. He has certainly kind of been there, done that. As you say, he's now got six career titles or kind of at a decent level. He's up to number 15 in the world. He's nine and three uh, in 2024. So I think it's certainly enough evidence to say that he he's back and in the mix. And that 15 to 10 slot on the men's side right now, that is like changing every week. I mean, players are, are in and out of there. And um, I, I think if he can have a good sunshine double and you know put a couple more wins together at these next 1,000 tournaments, he's certainly going to be a name that we're talking about moving into the top 10 in a couple of weeks or months time. Um, and I, you know, I agree with you. His serve is just so dangerous. It's just so efficient. Um, I, I think it's it's really hard to break him. And um, you know, if he's playing efficient tie breaks, it just sort of can sap the energy of your opponent. If you're just like, damn, I just can't get through this guy. Uh, in these types of situations and particularly on hard court. So um, he had a slightly kind of easier route to the final than Mensik did. I think he had a little bit more gas in the tank, also just a little more experience than Mensik, who, you know, probably, um, yeah, just just a, a new experience for him, first ATP final, you know, and, and you would expect the experience of Hachanov to, to allow him to be victorious, and that's what happened. But... Uh, Kudos to Mensik. I mean, he had a strong run at the Australian Open. He's having another uh, couple of good wins post this tournament already. And, um, of course, I think the most impressive win here was against Rublev, who hasn't been too shabby himself this year and uh, just blew him off the court. So, I mean, Yeah, he had never been a top 50 opponent before this week. But Rublev was 10-0 against players outside the top 20. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Menzik and, uh, nine and three in your first 12 matches on tour is something that I've barely ever heard of. That's crazy. Yeah. So wild. Um, all right. And, uh, yeah, I think now we can go on to the power rankings. Okay. I will leave you be. Okay. Uh, All right, guys. I'm headed to prepare for some stuff for Indian Wells. So hopefully if you're going to be at Indian Wells, I'll see you there. Send me a message on Instagram or Twitter. I'll leave you in the trusty hands of Anthony 
to take you through my power rankings, what's coming up this coming week, and uh, some culture pieces as well. So I'll see you guys soon. All right, see you. <laughs> Bye. Cool. And now on to the power ranking segment of the podcast. Uh, so my ATP side of it, I've got Sinner, and then I've got Medvedev, Djokovic, Verev, Dimonor, then Hercotch. Nobody moved there. I have Hatchnoff breaking in because he, he did really impress me this week. I think a big thing for Hatchnoff moving forward um, is really, you know, there's there's a few things. And it really all comes down to the fact that he he will consistently beat guys lower ranked than him, kind of like Sebastian Baez, although on a higher level than Baez, uh, a little bit at the moment for sure. Uh it's he's hard it's hard for him to beat top 10 guys and part of it is mental like when he was up 5-2 on Dimitrov in the uh in the third set tiebreaker uh, a couple weeks back um you know it's hard for him to beat guys of that level uh part of it is mental the other part is kind of variety although I th- saw a lot of it this week and I thought it looked better you know by variety I mean kind of the slices the net game transition game is a big one as well but I think that uh, you know, his serve is so good. He's got a great forehand. He's got a great backhand. He's got great instincts. Um, he has, def- he has uh, you know, I think actually deceptively good speed on the court. Uh, and he's got great power. I just think that it's just beating the top guys and getting that one big weapon to be able to compete with those guys and really cross the line against those guys. The variety, the mental, and having just up upping his weapons to get over the line if he can do that. Um, so... And, but anyway, he's having great weeks, and uh, shout-out to Hatchnop. I think he's going under the radar, and I think I think he's still a contender for a Masters. Uh, he won one in Paris in 2018. I think I think that he's playing some of the best tennis of his career, especially last year where he you know he reached two consecutive slam semis, and then he was completely outplaying Djokovic at Roland Garros uh, before uh, Djokovic came back in the second set tiebreaker. But I think that, you know, after that, he had to uh, withdraw from Wimbledon and things kind of went off the radar a little bit for him. Uh, he won the title in Zhuhai towards the end of the season, though. So, but still, uh, he's having a good time of it. Rublev, and then I've got Umber climbing in. Um, or sorry, Umber was in at number nine. Umber was in at number nine. But um, so that... Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's just playing great. He's hitting huge off both wings. Uh, Monfils beat Umber last week, and Umber didn't play the best match, but also Monfils was so zoned in. Played such a smart match. He had 22 winners to six errors. He was doing so well on serve, on first serve. Not so well on second serve, actually, but didn't have to hit the second serve very much. Um, and then, yeah, I've got Menzik climbing in as well uh, because he just had such a great week, and I feel like for doing power rankings, this is players we're excited about. Yeah. Yaku Mensik is in there. He's in there, and he's playing amazing. He also beat Chorich 9-7, third set tiebreaker this week. Already following it up, it's so impressive to me more than anything, the mental game that he's shown, saving break points, stepping up, peaking at the right moments, and that is something that you don't always see. Uh, the woman uh, on uh, Eliza's men's, uh, men's side, uh, she's got Sinner, Medvedev, Djokovic, Alcar- and then she's got Alcaraz. I think Eliza is, you know, thinking Alcaraz got injured this week. She's hoping for a good result at the Sunshine Double where Alcaraz has had success before. Then Eliza has Zverev, and then Hatchinoff is in there as well. Hatchinoff is in there as well. Demonor did not make Eliza's list, which I would have asked her if she was here for uh, where Demon is at. But anyway, uh, people, <laughs> you know, 
Uh, but anyway, uh, Demonor did lose to Mickelson, so he did have a worse week of it. But I think he maybe was tired from Rotterdam, which is why I didn't move him down. I kept him at five despite the poor kind of result this week. Um, you know, he had a long week. He beat Dimitrov last week. Um, I believe he beat Sitzboss as well, maybe? He beat a, few, a couple of good players in Rotterdam. And he played one of the best matches I've seen him play against Yannick, despite it being straight sets. Um, so anyway, I think he was just tired. It was only a couple days after that final he played against Mickelson, who was playing out of his mind, coming to net a lot, just playing amazing. Mickelson really had a great week. So shout out to Mickelson. Rublev, uh, then Herkoch, and then uh, Eliza's Rude climbing in was so close to putting Rude in here. Maybe I would have put in hum- Umber out uh, because he lost to Monfils and put Rude in, but I just like Umber a lot right now, so he makes it. Rude, if he has one more good result, he he might skyrocket into my power rankings. And so maybe even like five, six, seven spot territory. Menzik also at 10, similar reasons to to me, I think. Shvantak climbed ahead of Sabalinka. Sabalinka had a fairly poor loss to uh, Vekic and, you know, Shriantek reached the semis. She has a good result off of Doha. So makes sense. Uh, Rabakna is in there as well. Then Goff, um, then Kalinskaya, Paulini, both me and Eliza put Kalinskaya ahead of Paulini. Listen, Kalinskaya is just, she's playing some of the best t- tennis of her life at such quick improvement with such a vast skill set, not just offensively, but, you know, drop shot, slicing neck game, um, you know, but she can hit big as well, which, and uh, I just think she had, she had a great result in Australian Open. Uh, she's had a great result in a few tournaments recently this year. And uh, Paolini, this has been a great run from her this week, uh, will be probably the best run of her career. But I just think that Pal- Pal- Sky has been able to do it more consistently. But let's see if Paolini can, you know, back it up. But Paolini is at a career high of number 14 in the world. Sky is at a career high of number 24 in the world. Um, then Eliza has Pliskova, Ospinko, Zhang, and Svitolina. Uh, similar to me, uh, I've got Ospinko, Goff, Zhang, Pliskova, Azarenka. I like the Svitolina mention. I hope that she can have a few good results now that she's back healthy. But yeah, those are some of the those are some of the power rankings at the moment. I think that Count Sky is very exciting, and uh, you know we're, we'll see if it's like a Raducanu Fernandez type of situation where. It might be good for uh, it might make Kalinskaya hungrier that she didn't even end up winning the title now that she won she went all the way. It was kind of a reverse actually of Rod Connor Fernandez because uh, Paulini was like Fernandez in this situation, making so many great comebacks and uh, you know and uh, Pauli and uh, Kalinskaya is like the Raducanu of uh, this situation as a qualifier. But also you can make an argument that Paulini is kind of like the uh, Fernandez because. She, um, or sorry, that uh, Count Sky is like the Fernandez because she's been a lot of top players. So anyway, it's a very comparable situation. And I, I tend to think, you never know, it's all what ifs at this point. But uh, maybe winning the title wasn't the best thing for Emma at the end of the day. Put a lot of pressure and eyes on her automatically. And maybe would have favored Layla more. We never know. Layla would have gotten all that pressure as well. But I... I think that we'll see if maybe it's a Layla Emma situation where this will only make Kalinskaya hungrier, the fact that she didn't go all the way. We'll see what happens, but it'll be exciting to see what all pans down. Then now I want to talk about the, um, I want to talk about the, uh, the upcoming tournaments and the tournaments going on currently. So we've got an Acapulco tournament featuring Zverev, Demonor, Runa, Titsboss, Rude, Fritz, Paul Tiafo. Acapulco is stacked up. I'll tell you what, though. A few seeds have already fallen. Um, Names specifically, Fritz, Paul, 
have already uh, Fritz and Paul have already lost. Um, I'll take a look right now at the Acapulco draw. But we've had a few a few seeds already going out. Zverev also, by the way, lost to Altmar today. So that is a big result. Huge result. Top seed. Sasha Zverev is out. And I don't know. That would make Zverev climb down to my power rankings. But Altmaier is always dangerous. Uh, Yannick knows something about that. Yannick Sinner. So anyway, uh, that was a big result. And uh, But the it's still stacked. The tournament is absolutely stacked. There's going to be a lot of great matches coming up. We could get Demonor versus Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals. That is a matchup that Demonor hates, but Demon is playing some of the best tennis of his life. Tsitsipas is trying to find his form, so that could be a great, great quarterfinal. And uh, by the way, that was a great quarterfinal in Los Cabos last year in the final of Los Cabos. So yeah, we'll see what all happens. That's Acapulco. Talking about Dubai, we have Medvedev playing. We have, uh, who else do we have playing? We've got Medvedev, Rublev, Ashnoff, Umber. Bublik, Manorino, and Fokina. And, um, you know, it'll be uh, it'll be exci an exciting tournament. Korda versus Rublev. Korda, by the way, beating Botic van de Zanschkulp 6-1-6-0. That wasn't Botic's first match. Botic had a good win his first round. Botic beat Manorino, the sixth seed, 7-6-7-5. Korda wins 6-1-6-0. Korda beats Kotov in the first round, 6-0-6-2. Jesus. Korda's lost three games. He's got Rublev next. Watch out, Rublev. I'm calling upset. I'm calling upset. Look at those score lines. Jesus. Uh, anyway, Umber Medvedev could be a semi. And uh, Rublev Korda, the winner of, the, uh, of those two, could play the winner of Bublik Lehechka. Could be Medvedev Rublev. Could be Medvedev Korda. Um, and yeah, Umber Medvedev would be fantastic. That was a great upset at the ATP Cup a couple years ago where I thought Umber was finally, finally going to start rising up. Then he had a much worse 2022. Good to see Umber is finally where he belongs at 25 years of age. Finally, uh, you know, right in the uh, main conversation of the tour. So those are some of the tournaments coming up uh, that are I think are exciting. We'll see how Medvedev does. This is Medvedev's first tournament following Australia. And, you know, I uh, I think that was good that he took some rest following Australia mentally, physically, just in about every single way. Um, I, I think he's still finding his form. But listen, he played he had like an all time run in Australia. Longest run a player has ever had ever recorded to have at a Grand Slam tournament, uh, maybe ever has had period. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he had so many tight wins, exciting win, wins, a two set to love comeback when two sets up on center playing some of the most exciting tennis we've seen in a while his legs just ran out of gas but shout out to Medi. i don't like it when people exclude medvedev out of the conversation i know it's tempting to just go center Alcaraz and Djokovic. i think that you can also market it in that way that's fine but i i just hope that we keep medvedev included because he really has proven himself in that top tier in my opinion and um you know andy roddick said it best but He's uh, don't look at the fact that he's lost just two finals from two sets to live up. He had to lose them to Sinner and Rafa playing unbelievable. And he is an unbelievable top tier player um, who's proven himself over 80% win rate on hard court, six major finals. I mean, six major finals is very rare, very rare. And uh, you know, we'll see if he can win the same tournament twice in Dubai. He said whichever tournament he wins twice will be his favorite hardcore tournament now on to the culture segment of the podcast Goff versus Pliskova earlier in the week uh horrible call from uh, from an umpire in that match and I'm not going to even speak that much about the umpire I want to talk about the lack of technology that's being used because 
Goff's serve was an ace, and the umpire it, it Fliskova hit the ball, and literally like one second, like a full second, if not more than that, later the umpire calls out. The ball's in, and the it's the umpire says replay the point, and then there's a whole thing. The umpire I think could have handled the situation way better. Uh, Goff was asking for the supervisor; she really wasn't allowed to get one, which is crazy. But the big thing I think that would have stopped the situation from even happening is if we had Hawkeye live on the court where you don't even have to have that judgment call of whether the out call happened first or not. Cause it doesn't matter because the, the technology already does it for you. You won't have, you know, that challenge or this or that, or that out call the late out call. So I just wish Hawkeye live was implemented to make things objective, to not have to make the umpire step in. And also we should have, we're watching a video that makes it quite clear that the call happened afterwards. But it makes it quite clear that the call happened afterwards. So if we had that in place where it was an objective rule that you should, you have to watch the video and make the judgment call. Um, and you never know, maybe the call wouldn't be overturned anyway, which would be crazy, especially in this situation. But you can watch the video like so many are watching on social media just for five seconds. And that would be the the challenge. And there's so many ways to like go, go in depth, especially on visual, but on audio as well. And, it just seems like we're not using the technology that's like at hand for us to use that everybody is using that we're using anyway, especially for like Hawkeye live where it's like, we're, we have so much technology at hand and video technology also for double bounces for foot faults. I've already seen different, you know, technology of like different angles of per, a person doing a foot fault. And it, it just like, I don't know why we're not using video replays for the, for all these kinds of stuff. You can say it's slowing down the game or it makes it look a little bit weird once it's so, so fine margins, especially when it's, you know, fiscal movement as opposed to um, whether a ball hits a line or not. But to me, it just makes sense. And I think that we're already, you know, quickening the game, like we're quickening the game in such a strong way. This makes sense, even if it slows it down just a tad. I mean, you can have maybe one challenge per set, one footfall challenge per set, one, you know, let challenge per set, one double bounce challenge per set, one late call challenge per set, or one or two. That makes sense to me. I think it makes sense. You have that in other sports, and I don't see why we're so slacking behind with tennis. At the least, we need Hawkeye Live. I think it's going to be implemented in 2025 across all events, at least all events off of clay. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it comes soon because uh, I think that this kind of stuff could be avoided. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of the culture segment for the podcast. Appreciate everybody joining in. Don't forget to like the uh, podcast if you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe as well to Quality Shot Tennis if you enjoyed it as well. I've been Anthony Hirsch. Appreciate Eliza. Uh, like always, joining in later. We'll be here uh, next week. I'll see you guys then. See you guys at the next podcast.